Hey, but here's what we're hoping uh, for the next eight weeks is that we're going to be looking into this book of Micah. So uh, some of the things that we thought maybe so you can get the most out of it is if in your small groups, now we're not a dictatorship, but we're, we're asking if you could do this, you could follow along in a little study guide uh, that follows roughly what I'll be preaching about. This is not my sermon notes. Uh, it's not, you know, you'll be like, oh, I didn't hear Mason say that. That's not the point of this book. This point is to add to uh, everything that I left out, if you like. Um, so you don't have to have uh, a 42-minute uh, sermon every, every Sunday. And the other thing we've got, if you'd like, uh, to aid in your understanding and enjoyment of this little book of Micah is uh, a reading plan based on when we did soap. I don't know if you can remember a while ago we did that sermon on soap, scripture, observation, application, prayer, uh, broken it down into daily readings for you. So, And then we've got the little soap thing here so you don't forget it's on the desk at the front. Uh, if you're keen, uh, grab it and then you'll be, um, and you'll be all, all, all green for travelling along uh, with us in Micah. All right, so let's get into this... Uh, this pretty confronting little book, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, it's a book that actually it makes us deal with some of the tough questions in life that we would uh, typically like to skip over, like to avoid. In Micah, it's a book like most of the prophets. It has three main themes, sin, judgment and hope. In Micah, we see how God deals with the persistent uh, sin of his people. In two ways. First way is deserved justice through the judgment of God amongst his people. And then the second way is hope, uh, the undeserved grace uh, of God. And God speaks both of these uh, through the prophet Micah that the justice of God uh, will be seen, that sin will be confronted and destroyed, but also the mercy of God will be experienced and God's mercy will not allow uh, sin to be the final word over creation, sin to be the final word over his people. Nevertheless, as Stephen Um remarks, what a cool last name, in the opening of his, of his commentary, if Micah, if, if, if in our time in Micah we don't get uncomfortable, it's a clear sign that we are not uh, reading this book correctly. We're not dealing with this book appropriately. And I'd probably say that that's true of all scripture really. It should, all scripture should come and interrupt our comfortable lives with God's uncomfortable grace. So that'll be good. Okay, uh, story time. A couple of weeks ago I found myself uh, embroiled in a pretty uh, heated conversation with my dad. That's not unusual. Uh, He's pretty fiercely passionate and fiery about whatever he wants to talk about, particularly uh, social issues. And he likes to just get into it with his religious son and just kind of throw a few punches in there. And then over the, uh, in this conversation while we were, well, I was listening and he was uh, talking, it had kind of an overarching themes, if you like. And, and one of them was justice uh, for the weak and the vulnerable. And then he's just losing his mind about the abuse of power by the powerful. He was just, as I said, losing his mind about the injustice and abuse that's been in in the news about the church lately. The church is meant to protect people, not abuse people. 
Losing his mind about the injustice and the abuse and the heartless nature of a government towards people in detention centres. The way large and powerful corporations and the existing rich put greed and wealth accumulation and against and above the well-being and the livelihood of, of those they employ, of those they, they get in to, to make them wealthy. Just totally white with rage. I could hear it coming down the phone at the loss of asset security for the average person as, as crippling debt, immoral banking practices and tax reform drove people from their land, robbed them of their homes and their heritage and just left them in poverty and destitution. He didn't miss anyone in his assessment and his observation of our culture and the landscape that we live in in Australia. He even waded into the uh, global conflict and the mess that's in the Middle East, but um, that, that, that got a little bit uh, off the chain. Now, he's not speaking uh, out of ignorance, like some, like some kind of Facebook rant from, I don't know, a member of the Extinction Rebellion. He's an extraordinary, well-read individual, incredibly politically savvy on, on global politics and the nature of the world. And as he took a look at the state of the world, he saw this universally persistent, incurable corruption that just kept rising to the surface of culture. And this wasn't grieved. It was celebrated. It was desired. But it was fundamentally evil to him. Not the words that he would use, but the sentiment of what he was conveying. After about 20 to 15 minutes of this conversation, which I'd been listening intently, I, I said, Hey, Dad, I've been reading through this book, Micah, lately. And I can't help but notice that the things that are enraging you are the very things that enraged God. The things that you demand justice for are the things that God has promised to deal justly with as a good and just judge. Well, that didn't tip the conversation in a positive direction. I kind of knew, I think, how do I shut this guy up? No. Because up until this point, my dad who is an extraordinarily generous person, had been able to give evidence of how he exercises his justice and, and his mercy and care for the world around him. He's a, he's a Vietnam vet. He's been back into Vietnam, dug wells and put up schools for people there. So he's done stuff. And he wouldn't, and he, and he wouldn't act like uh, this bunch of mean-spirited, heartless, and it kind of got a little MA15 plus bordering on sort of R-rated description of a particular demographic of people that's responsible for all the injustice that we see around us and, and that we feel and gets perpetrated upon us. However, the introduction of God and his character as a point of reference for the ethical expectations and the standards of, of, of what to do, where can we find justice, was not sweet relief. It was further frustration because against God, as he contemplated God, as he knows him, there isn't anyone who isn't corrupt and unjust. 
All of us left here are our own affections. We'll, we'll put self in front of others. And that is the uncomfortable narrative of Micah. It's not a book about some nameless institution or organisation that is uh, perpetrating injustice against people. It's a book that probes the heart of, of you and I and asks, do, do you do justice? Do, do I do justice in, in every aspect of my life? Do I love kindness? Do you love kindness? But most determinatively, do we walk humbly with our God? Because you know you should. You know that verse in Micah 6? What is it, oh man, that you should do? Walk humbly, do justice? That, that, that verse we stick on a fridge mag- magnet and all the time is not some nice little thing to go, oh yeah, I'm doing justice and mercy. Yeah, I fed my dog and patted the homeless person on the head. That is a rebuke to say, God has told you what to do. Search your heart Are you doing it fully? We live in a broken world. Exploitation, oppression are symptoms of the brokenness that tells us that something's wrong, that things are not as they should be. And if we are painfully honest, our hearts tell us that as much as we're affronted by the obvious injustice of others, we we easily choose greed over generosity. It's the easier thing to do. We easily choose comfort over the needs of others. That's the easy thing for us to do. And we seldom grieve what we should grieve. And we often celebrate what we should lament. Think about what you've watched on TV this week. Our longing for justice and our failure to fully live it out is just not a modern problem. It's a human reality. It's existed since the garden. It's the question that was just as vital to the ancient hearts as it is to our modern hearts. It's a reality that should constantly make us ask, who then, who then is both qualified and capable of bringing justice to the human condition and at the same time acting with mercy and hope towards broken people? Micah is one such book that that answers that question. And as the meaning of the prophet and the author of of this book, as the meaning of his name says, and his name means, who is like God? Who is like Yahweh? That's what Micah means. Answers this question by causing us, by causing the original hearers and listeners, and by extension causing us to bring to bear everything we know about the revealed character of God into the cultural environment around us and into the cultural environment of our hearts. And in doing so, there we find the answers. There we gain wisdom. There we find the one who is qualified to, 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 to bring both justice and judgment and hope and grace. Yahweh had made himself known to, to Israel through a covenant. He's a relational God. And that covenant, in that covenant, he desired that his character, that his name and, and his nature, if they read through it and dwelled and, 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 and spent time on it, it would just become part of who they are and what they do. He'd made everything that they needed to know to bring justice and mercy into their broken lives available. Who is like God indeed? 
Well, the opening verses of our, our little book, Micah, here, uh, give us as much as everything, really, that we need to know and to understand about how this book came about, why, why Micah came uh, about and why it's actually found in our scripture, why we can and read it and know that this is God's word, it's timeless truth, somehow applies to us. Well, first and foremost, as we've just discussed, uh, Micah, his name means uh, who is like God. That would have to be, uh, I was thinking about this this morning, that's got to be a hard name to grow up with. Uh, going through school, uh, where's who is like God? But, and I don't know, I, I speculated on this this morning, thinking, why would you give a child that name? Who is like God? And, and I don't know, maybe, who knows, speculation, it's not in our Bible. Maybe they were barren, maybe they couldn't have kids. And then when the kid came along, it's like, yeah, God is pretty cool. Who is like God? I don't know, maybe they looked at this kid and went, wow, that is a good looking kid and it came from us. You know, who is like God? But every time his parents, in this broken world, dealing with family matters and debt and whatever, called out to that kid when he's beaten up on his sister, they were reminded of the goodness and the greatness and the faithfulness of God. And as Micah, who is like God, walks around Israel, his very presence calls the listeners to the same thing. He is a prophet. We read that. And this book is what we might call the condensed and succinct record of the message that God uh, spoke to him uh, to give to the people. Somewhere during the reign of three kings called uh, Ahaz, Hezekiah and Jotham. Now, you'll note, the northern kings don't even get a mention because by now, Israel and North have become so far from God that their kings are no longer considered godly kings. So here we have Micah. Something that we should note and kind of throw on this in here is that there are actually two Micahs uh, in Scripture and we're going to use the first Micah as a pattern for the second. Both of them are prophets. The first one, we'll call him early Micah, is found in 1 Kings 22, 2 Chronicles 18 and he turns up in the third year of a king called Jehoshaphat about 870 BC to about 845 BC and this guy Micah, their names are spelt slightly different but kind of pronounced the same. He, he, he confronts the king with courage and conviction and speaks an uncomfortable truth. There's uh, Jehoshaphat and Ahab and they're wondering whether they should go to war and all their prophets are going, yeah, go to war, go to war, you'll win. And and Jehoshaphat's just a little sketchy on the idea. He goes, is there anyone else? And and Ahab goes, well, there is this other dude, Micah, but I don't like him because he keeps speaking the truth. Uh, So they get him in. And he speaks the truth and conviction to these kings rather than simply telling them what they want to hear to get paid. And then Ahab, this king who doesn't like him, and the other prophets just lose their minds about what he said and they they lock him up and they throw him in prison uh, and, and they say, man, when we get back, we're going to kill you. To which Micah says, early Micah says, if my words don't come true, you will know that God has not spoken through me. Unfortunately for Ahab, despite his best efforts, Micah's words ring true. Micah told him, Israel's going to be scattered like sheep and you're going to be killed in the battle. And so Ahab's like, oh, I can, I'll fool this dude and he disguises himself and he wanders onto the battlefield. He tells Jehoshaphat, you, you go ahead, dress like a king because uh, it's great to 
knock off a king if you can. Uh, and Ahab sneaks onto the battle. This is, not, I don't, this is why we're 42 minutes. This is not in my notes. And, and he's hiding amongst the people. And then some dude with a bow just kind of loosely lets an arrow go randomly and it goes between his armour and kills him. Early Micah put his reputation and his life on the line against the revealed word of God and the word of God that God had actually spoken to him. Now, in Deuteronomy 18, God establishes the role of a prophet in the ongoing life of Israel. Prophets who succeed Moses, Moses is the prophet par excellence, he's the first prophet, were to enforce the covenant, urging people to obey it and, to, uh, and reminding them of the blessing that flows from obedience and the curse that flows from disobedience. This covenant is the relationship that God entered into at Mount Sinai with Israel after setting them free from the bondage of slavery in Egypt and it basically said, just as I promised your ancestors and your father Abraham, I am unconditionally uh, commit myself to be your God and to bless all nations through you and to ultimately bless all creation in the world through a descendant that will come from your people. If you live in a way that manifests my character, in your way of life, and, and, and in your worship, you will continue to enjoy the blessings of this covenant relationship. I will be your God and you will be my people. But if you live in a way that slanders my name, that misrepresents my character and how I am to be worshipped, how to live with each other and treat each other, I will send prophets and they will warn you, repent, change your behaviour. See the patience of God, the grace of God? They know what's right, but God says, I'll send a prophet just to remind you before I clip you. And if you don't repent, you will face the curses attached to the covenant. This is, this is the operational sphere that prophets are working in. And in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, in verse 18, false prophets are to be put to death. And in verse 20, we find the test of a prophet. What do you think the test of a prophet is? They are simply never wrong. Not they are right. Being right is not enough. The test is never being wrong, particularly about stuff they couldn't know. The reason they are never wrong is because God, who is sovereign over humanity and all of history, he just never lies to people in that. And God tells the prophet, the true prophet, what to say or what they should know. It literally is the word of the Lord come to the prophet. It's not their opinion. It's not their studied thoughts or their prayerful consideration. They are revealing what God has secretly disclosed to them. It does not mean a prophet is perfect. They are just as capable as you and I of, of being sinful and are sinful. However, when they speak for Yahweh, they are infallible. They are never lying. They are always right. That's the test of never being wrong. And it accompanies the call from God that we find here and the presence of the Spirit that authorises a prophet and means that their words and their writing are from God and, and, and can become scripture and timeless in their authority over life. That example of early Micah is the same lane 
the same lane that later Micah is rolling in. About a hundred years later, our boy Micah turns up, who is from that rural town of Morsheth. And he's rolling in the same lane as prophets before him. He's a professional prophet. Verse 1 tells us that the word of the Lord came to him. This is a standard calling card of a prophet. It means the word of the Lord that actually happened. So it's speaking to historical authenticity. What was spoken happened. It was from the Lord. It concerned Samaria and Jerusalem and their judgment of sin and it it all came true. He's filled with the same spirit of truth and passion for the character of God that a prophet of God should be. We read in... uh, 3, 8, in Micah 3.8 But as for me, I am filled with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sin. There's nothing there about Micah's personal abilities, his qualities, his style, his power, his education. The only thing that he boasts in is that he has this irresistibly, he is irresistibly compelled by a dynamic force that is jealous for the character of God. And we would throw the language around that, that he's filled with the Spirit of of God. And then later, if we keep reading along and we get to uh, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 26, 17 to 19, and 2 Kings 18, 5 to 7, it's a hundred years after the ministry of later Micah, we read that he was not wrong about anything that he prophesied. On, on, on the promise of death, on, on, the, on the regulations of death. We read there later on, they're, they're talking to the king at the time and they're using the example of Micah to make a decision now. Did they have to put Micah to death? He, he, he prophesied on the promise of death. Did they have to put him to death? No, because all that he prophesied came true. And those who, who took his word as from God, like Hezekiah at the time, the, the king Hezekiah did, was spared from God's judgment. And Micah's words become formative for future instruction. Micah is true prophet. That's why he's in our scripture. That's why he's reliable. That's, that's why we can use uh, this book in our life today. Micah is often called uh, the prophet to the poor because he comes from the land. He comes from rural settings. Unlike Isaiah, who's kind of, he's a bit of a city slicker. He grew up in the big smoke and that. Micah spoke, though, into the city and against the injustice that was happening, but not just merely into Jerusalem, but out throughout the whole land of Judea. Micah was one of the lonely voices in a day of gross injustice, speaking from God on behalf of the poor and the marginalised, a group of people that God has special concern for and who God's covenant required the people of Israel to have special concern for. The covenant that we find uh, in all the regs in Deuteronomy had written into it the security of people's well-being. Verse 1 tells us also the time frame of this ministry. As I said, the reign of these three kings of of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. Now from extra biblical uh, evidence, pottery and texts that archaeologists, whoever they are, people who look at history, dig up, and also from our biblical evidence, such as Second Kings, uh, chapters 15 to 21, and Second Chronicles, chapters 27 to 31, where we read about the reign of these three kings, plus what we find in Isaiah and Hosea, 
we know that in this time stamp, in this frame, in this place of history, Israel is rotten to the core. It's dominated by greed-driven materialism. Sound familiar? Rife with oppression and abuse of the weak and the powerless. Religion has just become uh, some preferential formality. It lacks any evidence of the transforming character of God. And in a land that was meant to center its worship of God in Jerusalem at the temple, where God had chose for worship to be, where God had chose to manifest his presence, every available uh, and suitable spot was adorned uh, high places with, with worship to all manner of gods, with worship to all manner of desires. Israel and Judah now looked more like the surrounding pagan culture than one shaped by the heart and the mind of the word of Yahweh, the one shaped by the heart and the mind of the covenant. They simply worshipped which they desired. Comfort, wealth, pleasure, these are good things, but they're terrible gods. They're false gods because they breed insecurity and selfishness. But most disturbing is the leaders of Israel are the worst offenders. It's the kings, it's the prophets, it's the priests who were put in place to maintain and execute covenantal fidelity in worship and social practice that are the worst uh, perpetrators of injustice to people, of idolatry in land. In Micah's day, the, the increased wealth that they had at the time and affluence amongst the social movers and shakers did the opposite of what wealth and affluence should do in the kingdom of God. Rather than be used for the care of widows, orphans and aliens, it led to increased callousness and eventually, inevitably, to blatant disregard for the foundational laws from God as people pursued more gain, more greed, more wealth. Abhorrently, those responsible for administering the injustice uh, in this land, became more and more involved in conspiracy and bribery and all forms of corruption. It was the priests and the, the prophets that were engaged in this. In Micah 3.11, we hear that it's the heads of the house of Jacob, the rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe and its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. And the people of God have reached a tipping point from which they cannot pull themselves back. In verse 9, Micah, or God says, their their wound, this infectious sore is incurable. Their participation in sin so complete, the prophet laments. It is this situation, am I on my right slide? It is this situation that God will no longer tolerate. And Micah tells us he is, co- he is coming to bear witness against them from the holy temple, out from his place. And when he comes, the very things that you have placed your affections in, the very places that you find your security in, the very things that you, you go to to worship are going to melt like wax 
the high places, these high places that signify both uh, preeminence and, and, uh, and sheer height of a location, like a big powerful cliff or something like that. Or high places are also a phrase used for where pagan cultures would come and centre their power and their worship and they would celebrate that. All of this is going to melt before God as he comes. The carved images are going to be beaten to pieces and a practice of life that abuses people and neglects God for personal pleasure and comfort and gain will be reduced to nothing, like being consumed by fire. The existence of these high places is key to understanding what has gone wrong in Israel and Judea. God's people were told how they were to worship, but they had chosen to worship how they felt like worshipping, where they wanted to worship, influenced by self-gratification. But most disastrously, they felt comfortable worshipping anything other than God. God who had called them into existence. God who had created them. God who had given them this covenantal relationship to sustain them. God who had called them out of Egypt and done all these amazing things. Israel and Judea's great sin that leads to injustice is idolatry. Choosing their will over God's. Giving their ultimate allegiance and affections that rightly belong to God to stuff that simply melts in his presence. And builds a culture of justified injustice. Not only have God's people committed spiritual adultery and relational infidelity, infidelity, which is what the word prostitution in there means, it signifies that. They have painted a picture of God that he's okay with injustice. He's okay with religious fickleness. He's okay with the misuse of power and wealth. Just pay him and feed him like we do all the other gods. Things are going to be sweet. No, things are not sweet. In verses 10 through to 15, Micah traces the path of judgment that will eventually be executed by uh, the Assyrian army. With clever wordplay, Micah runs through a series of towns, including his own hometown, using their names to reveal the, the coming judgment of God and at the same time exposing that their attachment to their idols, their towns and, and what they make much of, their towns are actually named after their areas and their hopes and their security, God in this wordplay shows that he is going to overturn such fantasies. As Micah treks through these verses, he uses the names of town, Beth La Afra, which means house of dust. Micah says, you at the house of dust will be rolled in dust. He uses the name of their towns to describe their judgment. The inhabitants of Shephira, your town means beauty town. You will live in nakedness and shame. And Micah works his way through the land, saying it's all going to burn. Everything that you place your trust in is going to burn. It's a pretty foreboding picture, the scale of God's judgment. It's, it's, it's uneasy. Mountains mounting, valleys splitting, towns laid waste. And by the end of chapter 1, 
Judah has been completely wiped out and conquered and cut off from her inheritance and led away in exile. Here's what we find as we get into the book of Micah. In Micah we see that God is not prepared to let his, sin, his people be ruled by sin. He's not prepared to let his people start to write their own stories they are simply not qualified to do that. And when we do, the world burns. And we hate hearing that. But when we get away from uh, the way God has designed for us to live and to enjoy life for relationships with Him, when we begin to wrap our hopes and our affections and our desires around things that are not capable of ultimate fulfillment, ultimate joy, of deep and satisfying the deep longings of our hearts, we start to write stories of destruction. They keep alluding us, so in pursuit of, of what can't be found in these places, in these, in these high places that we are looking for to find our meaning in the things around us, the, these idols of, of, of wealth and success and education and comfort and pleasure that are celebrated in their culture and our culture, we become increasingly insecure in this. We become increasingly selfish. We, we, we have to choose greed over generosity because we're just trusting in the work of our hands. We have to choose comfort over the need of others because no one no longer cares to look out for each other. We, in this environment, become capable of injustice towards others, to get what we crave or to get what we feel we deserve. This is not merely about big corporations. This book is asking us to look at our own small little hearts. You see, none of us are like God. We are not qualified to do life well on our own. And it's actually God's loving faithfulness to us that sees him move with judgment on sin. God's judgment in the Old Testament is never merely and purely punitive. It's always redemptive. It's always seeking to lead uh, people to repentance. And we often read these accounts of God's acts, these historic accounts of God's acts of judgment, and we think, wow, so harsh, so heavy-handed. Why has God got to be like that? The sin of Judea is incurable. It's a cancer spreading fast. It has come from Israel. Now it's at Jerusalem. The people of God who are meant to be a light to the world, revealing the character of God in their culture, uh, through their relationships and in their worship, were meant to, to give hope about how broken people can live in ways that don't lead to injustice, that don't lead to abuse, but lead to human flourishing and deep joy. When we fail to do that, the world is left in darkness. It's left without a map. It's left without a compass to find its way home. Without a narrative, without a visual narrative of salvation and hope. Judgment comes to correct, to restore the map, to reorientate the compass. It is not too harsh. You know what would be harsh? If God was just silent, if God was just indifferent, 
that would be harsh. Staying in his holy place, leaving us to our own self-destruction, that would surely be the most dreadful thing God could do. But God has committed himself to the ultimate salvation of people, the ultimate restoration of his creation. And he will not let the hope of that promise and that commitment die. Judgment, his correction, keeps that hope alive. And God takes no pleasure or joy in the correction of his people through judgment. But like a loving parent who would rather feel the discomfort that rebuke brings for a child whose actions are leading them to harm, he intervenes. And in verses 8 to 10 through the prophet, we get a glimpse of the, of the heart of God. God laments the effects of sin. It causes him deep sorrow. And Micah, using his language, obviously a country lad, begins to describe the nature of his wailing and his weeping, his deep sorrow over the sin of God's people. And the prophet, who is, who is a public ministry of God's uh, words, goes then on, on a public display, if you like, of his grief. And he's honest about the shame that sin brings on his people. He will not celebrate it. He will mourn it. The prophet will endure the consequences of sin in the public space. Nakedness in the Bible always represents shame. I will lament and I will wail and I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentations like the jackals howling out in the plains and I will mourn like the ostriches or the owls in another translation. Micah pours forth deep sorrow over the sin of God's people. Tell it not in Gath. The phrase that we find there that begins Micah's catalogue of disaster is a direct quote from King David's lament over the deaths of Saul and Jonathan in battle from 2 Samuel. No one should ever take joy in the consequences of sin that beset God's people or the people of God or the church. Saul Saul had been declared an unfit king. He was trying to kill David. David mourns the judgment over him. He mourns what sin has done. It's a warning to the nations that God would use to judge his people. He's going to use the Assyrians to judge, but he is saying that nothing good is taking place here. You are not to gloat over their destruction. Because while my people are like this, while the people of God are like this, there is no hope for the broken. The light has gone out. The book of Micah will unsettle us because it reveals just how prone to sin we are, just how capable of injustice we are. But the beauty of the book is the hope that is found in who is like God, a God that is committed to restoring the broken and not just letting us be ruled and destroyed by sin. As we move into communion this morning, I'd like to reflect on the picture of Micah's public shame and Israel's 
ultimate exile. These two images of the consequences of sin point us forward some 750 years to another moment when God intervened for incurable sin. Only on this occasion he had not called out a prophet to, to ask the question, who is like God? And remind sinful people of their condition. No, on this occasion he sent his son who said, I am not, it's not that I am like God, but rather I am God. Come to deal with sin once and for all in a way that cures its hold on our heart. But rather than ask us to demonstrate our shame, to show how ashamed, how ashamed of ourselves we are, or rather than ask us to go into exile and, and do some kind of punishment to, to, to make things better, to fix all this. On this occasion, he becomes shame. On this occasion, the covenantal God is stripped and beaten and humiliated. Not a man, but God. He is exiled and sent outside the city to die. He is cut off from the face of the Father. But not because of any sin that he had committed, but for all the sin that you and I have committed. He was without sin. And so Jesus becomes our new standard. We don't have the old covenant anymore. We have the new covenant. You want to know how to live in a way that pleases God? Look at the person, the man, the God-man Jesus. God's ultimate judgment for sin is taken upon himself to do what we can't do, pay for the offence of sin and to give what we can't give, new life freed from its power. In former times, the writer of Hebrews says, God spoke through prophets to remind people of his covenantal promise and their requirements. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the one hanging in shame and exiled on a cross for our sin. And after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Nothing more to do for us. On the cross, Jesus dealt finally and permanently with sin. No more prophets, no more exile, just an offer of hope found in the exile and shame of God on our behalf. Who is like God?